Old Man Winter here. If I had it my way, it would stay winter all year long. Short days, wind chill, black ice and a good polar vortex. Oh, <laughs> heaven. Wait, is it getting warm in here? Your cold snap is over, Old Man Winter. Spring has arrived. Spring. Spring is here, which means it's the perfect time to get away in the Hyundai you've always wanted. Visit the Hyundai Getaway Sales Event, where you can get great deals on all of our award-winning Hyundai models, like the tech-filled Tucson and Kona, as well as the spacious Palisade. Enjoy wherever you go with the peace of mind that comes with America's best warranty and three years or 36,000 miles of complimentary maintenance. But hurry in. These deals won't last. Add more joy to your journey at the Hyundai Getaway Sales Event. Now get 0% APR or up to 1,500 bonus cash on the Hyundai Tucson. Now, during the Hyundai Getaway Sales Event. Offers end soon. Call 562-314-4603 for details. And on a beautiful night here at the Coliseum, the lights have taken full effect. Welcome to Taking Effect, an Oakland A's podcast with Ken Korak. Now, with an inside look at the A's, here's Ken. As we approach opening day, Susan Slusser joins us on our podcast. Susan began on the A's beat for the San Francisco Chronicle in 1999 in a career that started shortly after she graduated from Stanford in 88 with stints in Dallas and Sacramento before she joined the Chronicle in 96. Her career certainly is multifaceted, as she also serves as a correspondent for MLB Network and the A's flagship radio station, 95.7 The Game. And as an author of a detailed history of the A's, she's made her mark in the publishing world as well. And I guess one of the ultimate signs of respect and admiration from her peers came when she was elected as the first woman president of the Baseball Writers Association of America in 2013. So with opening day just around the corner, we sat down with Susan as the A's were getting ready to break camp in Mesa. Well, Susan, as we sit down here in the ballpark in Mesa with the season just around the corner, um, and as you know, people ask me and they ask you all the time, how does the team look? And I don't want to be dismissive of the question, but isn't it really hard to pass judgment on a ball club during spring training? It is, and I would say this spring it's even more so, and I'm saying that for everybody in the Cactus League, just because pitching has been really poor throughout. So I don't know how you judge the offense, because is it because the pitching has not been up to its usual standard, and I certainly don't know how anybody is judging their, their pitching right now, especially the, the rotation. So we've seen some good work in A's camp from the relievers, which is great since that was such a big you know barrier last year towards them having any success. But the starting rotation has really not not uh, not ideal circumstances, I would say, when you're going into a season with a rotation that's struggling the way everybody's is. Do you find that you can drive yourself nuts trying to figure all those things out? Because I always reflect back on what Bill King said, mm-hmm. which is the more I think I know during the spring, the less I actually know. Yeah, well, and you know, anybody in the media, any reporter, you're so curious, right? So you kind of like fig- try to figure out all these scenarios. And then as things kind of fall into place, especially like, you know, if, if it's an injury, which is unfortunate, you know, right now the A's roster's become a little more clear because of the injury to Sam Fold. But you kind of wonder, what were they going to do? You, that's the sort of thing that can always drive you a little nuts, too. Even when things are settled, you wonder, like, well, what would they have done had they uh, – because you kind of want to know where guys are in the pecking order and – 
this, uh, there's so much focus on the opening day roster. That's really not the biggest thing. What's really going to be the team the bulk of the season? That's what you want to know. Things can change a lot in the first couple of weeks of the season. So now that we've said all that, and I've, I've said people are tired of me saying this, that, <laughs> that spring training is like the great illusion. It is. Uh, I think they're going to be a much better offensive club. And I think their bullpen will be a lot better. Yeah, no doubt. I think that those are, are two. The bullpen was such a big, big focus for the front office this offseason. I think they absolutely knocked it out of the park in terms of, I don't mean that uh, in any sort of negative sense. I think they've really found the right guys. I think the bullpen is going to be excellent. It's, t it's tough to project bullpens. I mean, they can be very up and down. Guys, I think there's no other position that is as prone to wild swings from year to year as relief, relief pitcher. But um, certainly if Sean Doolittle is fully healthy, which he looks to be, and pitching at his usual level, that's great. And Madsen, Axford have the track records. Liam Hendricks, we know wh what he did last year once he moved into full-time relief, was just sensational for the Blue Jays. And Mark Sipchinski is really an excellent left-on-left -left specialist. So I, I think this is a very nice bunch. And I love the lineup. I think it's got some really nice balance uh, because they're the A's. There's a lot of versatility. You know, there's maybe a move or two they could do that could make this roster make a little bit more sense, I think, with from a position player sense, but I like that. To me, the question marks maybe a little bit of the rotation from what we're talking about with the, you know, the not, not having some great results here and there. Uh, and the defense was something last year that was a concern, and I thought it would be better. It's tough to tell this spring because so many of all of these errors are coming from non-roster guys and minor leaguers but I gotta say that you know some of the regulars are not looking as crisp as you would like at this point of the spring either and I think once you get closer to opening day I think that's when Bob Melvin will play the combinations that we're going to see during the regular year and I would think at that point you can make maybe better evaluations of the ball club on defense uh, well, yes. Um, at that said, if you look at the defense in comparison with other teams, which I think is fair to do during the spring, the A's are far out in front of, a, of everyone else in terms of errors. So that's that's not good. Even if it's coming from lower level guys, the bulk of it, there was that one five error game. I think, you know, that certainly had something to do with it. And it was mostly guys who are not here anymore. But just in general, it's just not uh, the defense is such an emphasis for them. And it's not showing up in what they're doing on the field. I, I think especially going to the Bay Area for those final three games, it's always so great. But as from a pitching and defense standpoint, you would really like to see some guys step up for those games, big league stadiums, perfect conditions to play in, and really should, there should be a little bit of a sense of urgency. So, yes, those games are key. And the team ERA is around six, let's face it, and they're walking a lot of people. They've walked more than... They've walked more people than any other team in the big leagues. And so these games, they last forever. There we had a, like an 11 to 11 game, a 13 to 12, a 12 to one. Um, and I was talking to somebody today and I guess that Major League Baseball quantifies all these things. And the A's are playing the longest games of any team during spring training. So that must make you feel a whole lot better about covering yeah. the games on a day-to-day -day basis. Yeah, that you don't, you're not really telling me anything I don't know. <laughs> yeah, it's been brutal, especially some of the later innings in some of these games when you kind of get into the scrub wars with a, you know guys from the lower levels of the minors who are just filling in and nobody's throwing strikes. It's a, that can be a little brutal, but, you know, that's... Hey, it is spring. You try to keep that in uh, in mind, and uh, I don't think anybody really cares too much about our deadlines. But I, w I wish I'm going to start handing out my deadline 
sheets to everybody to let them know just maybe pick up the pace a little bit and yeah and it, honestly it's spring training for the umpires too we've had a couple of games where I would say that guys are not getting calls that doesn't help when it comes to the length of the games either so um we'll step it up umpires start calling just call us call everything a strike well <laughs> yeah in pitching and defense and everybody knows the importance yeah. of pitching and defense and especially the bullpen and last year they struggled there and they struggled defensively, yeah, that would go a long ways toward maybe turning around that one-run record of a year ago. Yeah, and or maybe their strengths and weaknesses are going to be a little different or, and completely opposite from what they were last year. Maybe this this year it's the bullpen that's a strength and uh, the lineup that's a strength and starting pitching not so much. So uh, if they can figure out a, make a, a way to make it work, great. Um, but at some point uh, they're going to have to figure out what they are. I do like this lineup, though, so I think people are going to be a little surprised when they see what the A's have here. Chris Davis was, to me, a potentially a spectacular under-the-radar pickup. Uh, I think he is, especially given his age, he's 28. He hit 27 homers last year and less than 400 at-bats. I think that just could be a, a really a remarkably – he's primed for, like, a massive season if he does what everybody thinks he might be able to do. Susan Slusser is with us. This is big to have you on the podcast because this is like a – a Slusser double play because you're actually the voice that introduces this thing. So this is like a big deal for me. It's kind of a big deal for me. I'm hoping you kickstart my uh, voiceover career because I <laughs> I like that idea of those jobs where you go and sit in the booth and you can come in in your pajamas and drink coffee and just uh you know it's just your voice. That be that'd be nice. I think they get paid pretty well too. So yeah. so long A's beat. Thanks, yeah. Ken Korak. But you've <laughs> but you've been a broadcaster. You were a broadcaster at Stanford. I was, and I loved my broadcasting days. I, um, as you know, my goal when I was a child was to be a play-by-play -play broadcaster for a baseball team, which I did all the way through high school and college, uh, and uh, even football. I was the color man, as they say, for Stanford football. <laughs> the color also, person. The color person. That just doesn't have the same ring uh, for Stanford football, and I, I loved my broadcasting days. But no, strangely, in the, mid, in the late 80s, nobody was looking to hire a woman to go cover minor league baseball as a broadcaster. Or so into sports writing, I went full time. I'd been working as a sports writer too in college too. So I love my career, but as you know, I desperately want your career. So you want my job? Let's face I it. Let's not beat around the bush here. I do. I would. I would. You know. You know, if something were ever to, I think there were people who were looking at me like a little bit askance when you were having your knee problems. Like, what did, Su did Susan do? A Tanya Harding to That's Ken right. Korak? Um, but seriously, if you look around baseball, and Susan Waldman works full-time on the Yankees broadcast, but she is a color person. Mm -hmm. She works with John Sterling. Do you think that the time will come where a woman will be doing play-by-play -play on a regular basis in the big leagues? I do think that. Um, I mean, it's interesting. It, it kind of launches me into a different thing. I was asked recently for a media uh, roundtable on SI.com about if a woman will ever play in the major leagues. I find that incredibly far-fetched and extremely unlikely because this is, I mean, th there are top players from other countries that come here and can't make teams. Uh, in terms of women being play-by-play -play announcers, I don't see any reason why not. Uh, Jessica Mendoza is now with ESPN. She's mostly doing color kind of work because of her background, but I think she could easily step into play-by-play -play and also a fellow uh, Stanford grad. So I'm very uh, excited about her career and can't wait to see what she does. You know, there there was some uh, backlash on Twitter when she started doing games, but that's to be expected, I think. That, but there have been women doing play-by-play -play on national football games, so I don't think that, that 
that is too far off. I think women uh, being in the in the studio at ESPN and on the sidelines and doing really good work for real sports and stuff like that, I, I think that that's almost inevitable. There are a lot of really talented women in the broad, sports broadcasting business. You could do it. Don't sell yourself short. You well, can still do that. That is my plan. That is my plan. <laughs> Shh. Don't tell anyone. I just, uh, you know, it's, I'm, I'm kind of keeping an eye on you. Yeah, I know. <laughs> um, I'm all too aware of that. In the interim, though, you're a published author with a book out. It's 100 Things A's Fans should know before they die. Is that correct? Or should, should do? Should know and do before they die. Oh, should know die. and do before they die. It's a tough, it's very, it's a very dire tile, title. As you know, it's part of a series, so I didn't come up, probably would not have been what I chose. But I think the the and do stuff, I was a little bit daunting when I started writing it. And as you know, my husband, Dan Brown, did the 49ers book in the series, which is how this sort of all, all came about. And I thought the and do, what do you, what does an A's fan do? And that turned out to be really much more fun and I learned a lot in the process of learning what A's fans should do uh, I went and sat in the in the bleachers and write which is an absolute blast and everybody should do if they even if you're not an A's fan go sit in the bleachers bleachers and write in the Coliseum uh, it's so it's so much fun you know ride your skateboard to the park and come to spring training and come to fan fest I mean, there's all sorts of uh, wonderful things that A's fans can do. Um, the wave, as you know, originated during an A's game at the Coliseum. When you do the wave, you are doing something that an A's fan should do. I know a lot of people aren't big on the wave, but that is that is engraved in A's fandom right there. Was that a Crazy George thing? That was a Crazy George thing during the playoffs in 1981, and uh, he... He uh, just—he'd been trying to get it going at various different college events, and never quite the configurations of arenas. Actually, there was actually like a science to it. The Coliseum is perfect with the bowl, and you know, getting kind of getting people. The first attempt sort of died halfway around when he said he was so excited when he finally got it to go all the way around, uh, and it was so different then. People loved it. Now it's just kind of old hat. I remember with uh, when I was doing San Jose State football on the radio, and Crazy George would come down to Spartan Stadium, and they would do the wave. Uh, back there, this was in the 80s and early 90s. Uh, if, if let's go back and talk about this team a little bit, because a lot was made of the issue of chemistry last year, and you wrote about it. How much did that permeate the clubhouse during 2015? Well, I think it was an issue, and probably uh, easily understandable when you look at what happened during that winter with nine trades. It was a completely new clubhouse, and then they got off to a, a bad start during the regular season and so many one-run losses, as you alerted, alluded to early. I think that can wear on a team. Um, so some of its results, some of it, I think it's just that, as David Force said, they, they never quite gelled. They never quite came together, and I don't think anybody would ever point the finger at any one person or a couple of guys. It just didn't quite mesh but it was it was a thing there's no doubt about it it was not a uh, necessarily the most fun clubhouse and this has always been a, a nice loose clubhouse environment I think they've regained that it's tough you know during the spring you're talking about on-field results how much do you judge it's tough to d judge a clubhouse during the spring too because you don't quite know what it is but uh, it, the guys that the team brought in, they were very careful this time around, I think, about doing their homework on character and um, teammates and leadership. All these guys have reputations as good leaders, good teammates. Again, not saying anybody that was here last year wasn't that, just the combination. These guys all seem to really be, especially those, those new Bullcon guys, wow, impressive people. You have to be very creative on the beat during the spring because 
the games, the results of the games are secondary, so you're looking for stories. You wrote a great story about John Axford, who's a multi-dimensional individual, um, Chris Davis. So have you found that there are good stories and, and good players to write about in this clubhouse? There are great stories. I mean, yeah, I think all the new guys, all of them have some sort of interesting backstory. Liam Hendricks, he's a former Australian rules football player whose dad and grandfather were Australian rules stars. Um, and he's a big animal rights supporter, Works in, likes to work in uh, you know, animal shelters, volunteers for animal stuff. John Axford is just, I mean, he's almost too interesting. I, it was hard to get everything into one story. There's, there's stuff that I left out. I don't know how he does it. That's, I mean, he's incredible. Uh, and Chris Davis, my goodness, he's fun. A's fans are going to love Chris Davis. And he already, he's talking about how much, how excited he is about Oakland and the Bay Area and the vibe of the Bay Area and the things he wants to do off the field. And I, he's, he's just going to be uh, a great addition. Yonder Alonso has an interesting backstory, and he grew up with Danny Valencia. They're close friends. Um, you know, his, his dad uh, played in Cuba. He was a bat boy in Cuba. They're just all, all sorts of really really great stuff i'm leaving oh my ryan manson was one of the great baseball stories ever with what he did last year being out of the game three years being retired coming back making the royals opening day roster being part of that amazing bullpen winning a world series and then getting a big three-year deal that's that's storybook right there yonder alonzo's dad was a catcher in cuba then was later a coach in cuba which kind of leads me to the the story of the rays going to cuba to play the cuban national team just looking at, at some of the players who went over there and their experiences, to me, it's like Chris Archer. Chris Archer is now the most interesting man in the world. Would you agree with that? Oh, my gosh. If anybody gets a chance to, like, to, pay, to pay attention to him, if he's on a broadcast, if he's on MLB Network, if he's a, he is so interesting. He's so good. I mean, he's going to be he, – he will be hired the instant he retires from baseball, which, of course, we hope is a long, long time from now because he speaks so well. He's so smart. His work last year during the playoffs was sensational. I just, uh, who doesn't love Chris Archer at this point? He's going to be a fantastic ambassador for the game and a great, great broadcaster. The Cuba trip was, uh, just itself, was wonderful to see. There's so much good talent there. If this, you know, sort of normalization of relationships between the countries can lead to maybe an easier way for Cubans to come play here rather than putting themselves and their families at, at risk, uh, it's a dangerous trip over here. I mean, you know the Yohannes Cespedes story that Damian Boa and I wrote for the Chronicle. Um, his family was essentially stranded on a desert island at one point and thought that they might not get off that island. I mean, this is not uh, something that should be happening to to people who have the skill set to to go play to come play in another country like this. One thing you have to do if the team loses a tough game is go in the clubhouse and ask those questions. How important is it for you to have the go-to guys that you can talk to, that you know you can rely on to give you something after a tough game? Well, you do. Um, we've been lucky in that respect. There's always t- a couple of different positions you need to be go-to guys. Um, one is the closer because closers invariably at some point in the season suffer some horrible, terrible blown save. But you, nobody wants to go talk to a closer after that. It's rough. It's a kind of an awkward oh geez how did that kind of unravel for you 
the A's have had great closers to deal with. Uh, going back, I'm going to say to Dennis Eckersley, who is still renowned among sports writers for after giving up the Kirk Gibson home run, one of the most painful moments in all of A's history, and certainly his own personal history. He stood and answered questions for close to an hour, the same question over and over, uh, which nobody likes to do anyway, at the lowest point of his life, and he was marvelous. Houston Street was fantastic. Um, uh, Andrew Bailey was wonderful. Uh, and now with Sean Doolittle, thoughtful, can can explain what happened, and he's not going to be, uh, you know, a jerk about it. it. Sometimes closures can get a little, you know, a little peeved at uh, questions after a bad game. He's fantastic. And you need your catcher to be great. And I don't have to tell you, but Stephen Vogt is off the charts, wonderful with the media, and so is Josh Fegley. So uh, we're we're lucky. We're a little spoiled. You're spoiled with Bob Melvin. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Bob Melvin is fantastic. Bob Melvin just kind of, he kind of, one of the reasons he's a really good manager is he is empathetic. He understands what everybody's job is. He, he gets the players. He gets the media. He gets the broadcasters. You know, he, his dealings with everyone are on such a, a mature adult level, and he tries to give us what we need. He's always thinking about, you know, what do you need for your job? How can I help you do that? Which is very unusual in any industry uh, when it comes to the media. People aren't going like, wow, how can I help this reporter out? Bob Melvin does that just, I think, surely because he is such an empathetic person. His emotional IQ is is very, very high, and that's, I think, important in this day and age for a manager of any professional sports team. How many times over the years, though, have you encountered situations where you dread going in the clubhouse, and it's just not any fun, and, you're th- and there's tension that is is almost palpable there and not only after a game where it's just the the whole year or whatever it is that it's just not a real comfortable situation for you well I think that's only it's really only if you've got a guy who's maybe a difficult personality and it's somebody you have to talk to and they've had a tough game or responsible for losing the game honestly covering the A's that has not been very often that I mean they've had very few guys who were difficult to deal with over the years Um, Milton Bradley could be very up and down Um, obviously there was a lot going on with him a very emotional uh, player and I can remember a few times where it was a little bit um, you know most intimidating trying to talk to him after a rough game Uh, that that was uh, very rare I know from people that covered the Giants and I covered the Giants some as a backup with the Sacramento Bee Barry Bonds could be very difficult Uh, that was tough because you had to talk to him because he's Barry Bonds Um, and also because sometimes he could just be wonderful I mean like as smart a person as there is in baseball particularly when it comes to talking about hitting really great insights but some days just not somebody who wanted to talk and let you know it so those for me the the guys who are very up and down are tough because you're not sure what you're going to get and that that's uh that that makes it a little bit uh trying to gauge that is is a fine line year before last you were the president of the baseball writers association what were the biggest challenges involved in that job well, the Baseball Writers Association, I think most people um, don't realize it's the number one thing that the Baseball Writers Association was formed for and is really, in essence, about is good access 
for writers, press box conditions, things like that most people don't really think about, but that are really near and dear, certainly to my heart. I, I need to have good access to do my job correctly and uh, you know have good press box conditions, et cetera. Uh, that, that year, uh, the Angels moved their press box all the way down the foul line uh, in right, and it was you, you can't see home plate from there. So that, to me, is unacceptable. I helped uh, sort of broker a little tiny BBWAA box behind the plate. It's pretty bare bones, i got to say. They didn't do necessarily any sort of work to spiff it up to actual standard levels, but you can see home plate. Um, so I did appreciate that. I'm not sure their part was necessarily in it. Not the PR staff. I'm saying maybe above them that there was not necessarily a lot of uh, uh, love or thought for the writers. But they did give us that. Um, and then there were, you know, there's always like little things. It's surprising. There was one team. You hear all the little complaints. There was one team that uh, during a doubleheader was not making the manager available between games, which is actually a posted rule that you have to. Obviously, people have stories, especially Associated Press places like that mlb.com they have to get out stories right away after the first game um there was a place where the manager wasn't being made available after uh, when a game was rained out stuff just stuff like that not not people might not think a big deal but if you've got to if you rely on these people to write your story it is a big deal i think there may be some confusion susan among fans and people who even ardently follow the game regarding the hall of fame major league baseball and the sports writers Sports writers vote for the Hall of Famers, and especially in light of the Pete Rose situation and the steroid era, explain those relationships and what's involved in that and the guidelines set up for voting for the Hall. Yeah, we are the Hall of Fame's chosen voting body, um, in part because they like a big voting body, and it, it has been as you know up to 700, 800 voting members. It's down a little bit more into the 500s, I think, right now. Um, but we have no control over the ballot, for instance, um, or the wording on the ballot, which, as you know, um, five or six times mentions character, uh, team... Uh, uh, Sort of, all sort of character stuff. We call it the character clause. That's actually like five or six mentions of, uh, you know, being being a good teammate and things like that and following rules. So uh, I am one of those who believes that that pertains to the steroid era. I absolutely understand the arguments on all sides. I've really struggled with them over the years, as, as many people have. Uh, I am, I'm one of those who feels like if there's actual evidence, and it, this has only been in court cases in my mind, connecting somebody with steroid use, I am not going to vote for them i am keeping an open mind on that and i might shift my thinking it's only kept me from voting for bonds and clements at this point uh and i love both of them as hall of fame candidates obviously i really would like to have known what they would have done clean i would like to know what that home run total in particular would have been clean as a clean player uh kind of heartbreaking that we don't we won't ever know but you couldn't vote for pete rose not that you would necessarily even oh, yeah. if you wanted to right. because he's ineligible according to major right. league baseball yeah and I, there are writers who write him in every year it's not you can't write in a guy but <laughs> it's not our again it's not our ballot so um yeah if pete rose was on the on the ballot that would be interesting because certainly in terms of the character clause where does he fall i think he's going to be a nice uh consideration at some point for the veterans committee um probably sadly after he's gone but again this is a guy who did um at, at points admittedly bet on baseball and on his own team which certainly is uh leads to a whole can of worms he can't have a sport if if there's uh, the betting going on with people that are involved in the actual games who is it possible that a decision could be made 
to allow some of the broadcasters to vote for the Hall of Fame? Um, for the, the regular, not the Veterans Committee, because there have been yeah. broadcasters on the Veterans Committee. Uh, that's up to the Hall of Fame. I mean, certainly they're aware that the broad, I think the, the one, and Vince, Vince Scully has said this himself, he says he doesn't want to vote for the Hall of Fame because he works for the Dodgers. It's seen as one of the reasons I think the Hall chose the writers is that we don't work for teams. There's no sort of um, perceived bias, I think, with some of the broadcasters working for teams and, and some of them being former players um, that there there was uh, some bias a lot of writers now work for MLB.com which obviously is a wing of Major League Baseball I think that maybe um, uh, muddies things it's muddy things for our membership in fact uh, many of us work for MLB Network certainly on a part-time basis so that's taking money from the league I do it I that's one of the reasons I voted to allow MLB.com into our membership BBWA membership which they are now and should be because they're doing exactly the same job we are uh, but there's there's a whole range of issues there. Um, certainly, I, I don't think anybody thinks the broadcasters aren't capable <laughs> of voting for the Hall of Fame. Everything always cited is that perceived uh, potential bias. My sense of that is everyone in any line of work has to reconcile their own integrity. Yes. And so I think broadcasters should be allowed to vote. They're eminently qualified, I would think. And like you said, I think I'm glad you mentioned that. The line has really been blurred because writers could be working for a network and a team might have a partial stake in one of the regional networks or a, a network that carries the team's games or you might even be writing a book about someone right. and so you might even benefit financially if that person gets into the hall of fame so there are all kinds of of, of roads that you can go down to determine whether or not someone might be worthy of voting for the hall right i think the concern in, in maybe the early days was pressure from a team on somebody that worked for them. You will vote for this guy. You won't vote for this guy. He left here under baby bad circumstances. Don't vote for him. And I don't think that that's necessary. Everybody has some sort of inherent bias. There are guys you like. There are guys you don't like. That alone is a is a bias. But, um, you know, there is a 10-year uh, waiting period to be eligible to vote for the Hall of Fame. I think that's good. Were any other groups to uh, join in the voting at some point or if they take over from the BBWAA, I think that, that that is something that is a good uh, sort of measuring stick, is that you've been in the game long enough to see these guys who are now eligible for, for Hall of Fame honors. So as the former president of the baseball writers, you can't get Bill King the Ford C. Frick Award? I mean, you should have a little more influence than that. As you know, I have been trying. <laughs> you've been trying. We've both tried. You know, the thing that really kind of irks me, and I've written this, is this whole eras thing that they do now. It's like three different eras. That's not helping. He should be, for he was on the ballot every year for a number of years, and now he's not eligible two out of three years. That's wrong. It's wrong period that Bill King is not. He's in the uh, wrong era. Yeah. And I talked to John Miller about this oh. the other day, and he's in agreement with me. And John, of course, former Frick Award recipient. And so maybe there might be some movement from that standpoint. But he's just simply grouped together with the wrong group of people in terms of looking at the era in which he made his mark. There are a few people who are more deserving of the Frick than Bill King. This was a consummate baseball announcer, and he was the best basketball announcer I've ever heard, and a great football announcer, and that seems to get held against him, which I've never understood. Like, oh, he did other things besides baseball. Yeah, and was great at them. Doesn't that mean he's even better? I mean, how, how many people are great at that level at that many sports and just I mean I don't have to tell you this you wrote the book he is he was brilliant it was just a joy to listen to him 
there are people, and I interviewed people for the book, who said that because Bill was so brilliant in the other sports that that diluted the perception of his work in baseball. That's absurd. Yeah. It's absolutely absurd. That's just the stupidest thing, the stupidest argument I've ever heard. Well, we can leave it at that. Um, I'm thrilled you came on our podcast. We could go on forever. We'll have to do a, a part two of this during the second half of the season. Absolutely. As you know, I will be happy to talk anytime. I enjoy talking to you, Ken Korak, up until I steal your job. <laughs> <laughs>